Good afternoon. I'm Matt Rubel, and welcome to Retails from the Frontline. We are here at the National Retail Federation Convention in New York City for 2019, and we have two amazingly talented individuals who are with us today and leaders in their field, both domestically you know, and around the world. We have uh, Stacy uh, Widlitz, the founder of SW Retail Advisors and a retail analyst for CNBC. And we happen to have Matt Shea, president and CEO of the National Retail Federation, which represents over 25,000 retailers throughout the United States. So this is an organization that is deeply ingrained in everything that's going on in retail and around uh, the United States. Our topic today is tariffs. Are they real? Are they imagined? What are they? What's going on? You know, haven't there always been tariffs? Why are we talking about them so much today? What is their impact on the consumer as well as the retailer today. So we've heard a lot of different things, you know, with the government saying, you know, we're not treated fairly with China. Therefore, we have to make ourselves competitive. But it comes back to tariffs. What is a tariff and how does it really impact a consumer? As you've said, it's been top of mind. Tariffs, uh, Twitter tantrums and trade is all we talk about these days. But it definitely affects the consumer because as we want a fair deal with China, there's been a back and forth tug of war and we've put 10% tariffs, will that go up to 25% on goods? What does that mean for the consumer? Most important, it means that your prices of what you buy are going up. And we've heard that. We've heard that from everybody from Home Depot to Whirlpool to other retailers who are canceling orders. So it's real and it's impactful. And it's something that can really change the balance of our economy in the U.S. And so, Matt, how do you look at what is a tariff and, you know, what's happening and how does it impact the consumer? And also all these retailers who you represent and the business and the millions of people that they have working for them. We think of the retail industry as a driver of the overall economy and as a real barometer uh, on the health and strength of the economy, maybe even a leading indicator. Uh, and, and we know in the United States that with 70% of our economic activity driven by consumption, primarily by consumers, that anything that impacts that negatively or creates any friction has the potential to ripple through the entire economy. A tariff is simply a tax on a product that is brought into this market. So if, if we're going to put a tariff on some good that's imported from another market in which it's manufactured, that other market, that manufacturer, that other country, it doesn't have an impact on them. The impact is on the United States consumer who pays a higher price for that good as a result of the tariff. What we've seen so far, now to kind of go back up to the macro level, is that Consumer fundamentals are still very strong and very healthy. Unemployment rate is extremely low. Uh, came up a little bit last week just because we're seeing people come off the sidelines to get into the workforce. Wages are growing. Uh, GDP growth has been solid. The retail industry has done extremely well. In October, sales were up 4.5% year over year, and in November, up 5%. So there's a lot of noise about tariffs. There's certainly a potential for this to have an, an impact on the price of goods in the United States. I think the administration, as much as we disagree with their tactics uh, in imposing tariffs, I think the administration has been at least aware of uh, the conversations that we've had about the impact on consumers because they've tried to carve out as many consumer goods as possible and hold those down and keep them out of the first tranche, second tranche, third tranche, 
and then the the impact on raising from 10 to 25 percent but stacy's absolutely right over time if this continues there's not a de-escalation uh, the result is going to simply be higher prices for consumers in the united states for for everything ranging from you know, consumer goods to, to inputs to manufactured goods uh, so all over the world. if they raise a tariff on something and that causes the manufacturer to blink, you know, or the company that does the manufacturing to blink, could that bring more jobs back to the United States? Because, you know, then, oh, you know, we can't produce it in China. It costs too much because of the tariff. Will they, will they bring the job back here? And is that positive? And They'll still spend the same amount. Maybe it'll just cost a little more. That could be an argument that some people would make. The notion of reshoring some of these jobs, bringing some of these jobs back to the United States, particularly for the manufacture of uh, relatively low-priced commodity goods or basic staples, I I think is probably not likely to occur without regard to what the administration's policies are on tariffs because of the way that supply chains are structured today and because of the location and the sourcing of so many of the raw materials that go into the manufacture of these products. And, you know, from your career in a, in a number of segments of the retail industry, you know where those goods can be produced in a cost-effective way, not only because of labor costs, but also of input costs. And just because the supply chain of today is incredibly complex and sophisticated. It's been developed over many, many years, retailers working with their sourcing partners, whether they're independent or, or subsidiary, and working with local production facilities in, in locations around the world. And the notion that the imposition of tariffs is going to cause those companies to just flip a switch and say, well, we'll just, our supply chain will come from somewhere else. It's not like going down to the grocery store and saying, well, if they're out of milk, I'll get it somewhere else. You can't just go buy this somewhere else. It takes years to actually create these supply chains. And I think that's one of the things that many policymakers in Washington don't appreciate uh, is the level of complexity that goes into the creation of the supply chain and the disruption that would occur as a result of this traumatic sort of imposition of tariffs and forcing companies to find other places and other ways in which to produce these goods. A lot of the manufacturing has already moved out of China. China labor costs have gone up over time significantly. So a lot of brands have already shifted to other places. You know, if you talk about the Gap, for example, it's just around 20% of their product is made in China at the moment. So it, for some brands and, and retailers, it's maybe perhaps not as large as impact as you would think it would be. So then to Matt's point, all we're going to do is raise prices. If we raise prices, that will take the portion of the economy which is driven by consumer spending which is about 70 percent and it will put it in flux and in turmoil i think what matt's saying is the jobs aren't going to come back here Uh, there are certain types of jobs certain cut and sew jobs and things like that that they're just not going to come back here we don't have right you know with minimum wage going up and all the other things happening that's not going to happen where's it going to go so they've been going to bangladesh Vietnam. In some cases, some of the brands have brought back some of the manufacturing because it is the only way for them to compete on lead times. So that's really important. You've seen brands like um, Victoria's Secret bring home some of their capabilities so that 
they can manage their inventories most effectively and create, or everybody's trying to replicate what Inditex, what Zara does. And the only way to really do that and have your lead times the shortest as possible and manage your inventories and your markdowns is to have that really close to home and everything integrated. So, but I think overall with wages going up and Amazon setting the bar so high in terms of what they pay their people, it's very difficult to bring en masse that, that capability back to this country. And uh, you both have traveled to many of these markets as well. A couple of months ago, I was in China and Hong Kong to do visits uh, just all the way down to the front. Like what's really happening in terms of the relationship between uh, uh, you know, U.S. companies and their, their suppliers and their sourcing partners and met with a, a half dozen uh, companies while we were there. And, and they said exactly what, what Stacy just said, which is the, the uh, disruption of the supply chain and the, uh, and the offshoring of the supply chain from China to other markets is already underway, and it has nothing to do with the imposition of tariffs on goods produced in China. It's, it's because it's more cost-effective as the Chinese market has become more expensive, more sophisticated labor costs have been rising. So the suggestion that if we impose tariffs, the jobs are going to come back here because the manufacturing comes back to the U.S., I think is misplaced because we already know that the diversification of supply chains has started some years ago, and it's not coming back to the U.S. Those supply chains are going to those other markets, Indonesia and Bangladesh and you know, parts no of Africa here. and America. No, no. Yeah. Part of the previous administration's point of view in creating uh, TPP which was the Trans-Pacific, you know, partnership, which was effectively creating an, a multilateral agreement with many countries in Asia so that goods, uh, you know, the components, all the goods could move back and forth between those countries and they could more effectively compete as a group against China, therefore giving us another uh, place of supply that was very effective. So why, if the administration really does want to have a tool against um China to enable them to drive that our tech companies have been blocked over there and things like that. Why wouldn't they uh, enable something like TPP to come back? Let's acknowledge that that the Chinese are engaged in unfair trade practices related to technology transfer and intellectual property and and regulatory burdens uh, on U.S. and other foreign companies doing business. So we agree with that and we'd stipulate for the record that that's ongoing and needs to be addressed. Our view is the way in which to address it is is a fundamental view of the world that sees the world as a global economy, not as a bilateral economy. And, and I think the, you know, the lens through which the administration in Washington is looking at this as, a, as if it's a, just a, a bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China, and that goes back to the diversification of supply chains, that it's not only about what happens with the two of these countries, it, it's about what happens in, in a global economy. Right, because tourism, people traveling to our country, creates a lot of consumer spending, especially at the high ends and in the major urban markets. So we want to kind of facilitate an open back and forth. But do, do you have a point of view on, you know, bilateral, trilateral, you know, kind of how we should, you know, create something that enables a great global economy, which keeps prices stable here in the U.S. while at the same time fostering good uh, trade policy. We do need to think about bigger pictures like protecting intellectual rights. Um, so it's it's not just about trade balance. Um, and there are other major impacts which you have to think about, which is 
just the volatility and the confidence that that affects management teams and CapEx investment overall. I mean, and that's something I think that the administration really isn't taking into consideration. You know, there's surveys out there talking about CEOs, 80% are looking for a recession by 2020. I mean, this volatility is not helping the thought process in terms of how do we plan our business for the next two years. The other thing, unintended consequence sometimes, is that when you're worried about tariffs, you look for inferior products that are just naturally cheaper so you don't have to raise prices on your consumer. And who gets hurt? It's the consumer. It's safety. It's product quality. So there are all these other bigger picture concepts that need to go into this tug of war, I think, that are underappreciated. Well, Stacy brings up a really good point, Matt. You know, you're kind of aligned on, but the how is kind of creating the noise. You know, it's it's backroom negotiations done publicly. I think you called them the uh, the Twitter tantrums. We've got all sorts of different things where publicity and the public aspect of that creates instability, which yes. in a private negotiating room actually is generally a positive right. thing because then that instability enables you to find out where your advantage is. So how would you counsel your retail uh, constituents, the you know the 25,000 members who are serving the 300 plus million people here in the United States to think about that as we're heading into these very challenging negotiations the next 30 days to Stacy's point, figuring out, do I spend the money on this, this, and this? Because I've got technology needs because the world is changing. Mm. How do you counsel them, Matt? That the level of uncertainty that's created because of the disruption in this environment about uh, what a relationship is going to look like with our trading partners, I think is very real. And I think it's got an impact on investment and other decisions. I mean, you know, our view of the TPP uh, and other multilateral trade deals was it was good because our fundamental view is the world is a global economy, not a bilateral one. And, oh, by the way, the TPP was really a, a security agreement disguised as a trade agreement. I mean, that's we needed to be there to counter Asia's and particularly China's rising influence in that part of the world and, and nature abhorring a vacuum. We absent ourselves from the conversations about 60% of the world's economy, which would have been subject to the TPP. Someone's going to step into that void. And so that's a conversation that our members are having uh, with the administration, with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, with the Department of Commerce, uh, with the administration directly, with members of of Congress on Capitol Hill. We want to be supportive and about and and optimistic about the opportunity to reach an agreement uh, with the Chinese. Uh, we, We disagree fundamentally on the current tactics. We believe there are negative consequences pretty dramatically for for both economies and and you know if you think about and consumers and you know american workers and chinese workers and that's not good for the economy or the world uh and you think about the old the, the thai proverb that when the elephants fight the grass gets trampled and that's what this is about i mean this is about fundamental battle between two political views and, and the casualties are going to be consumers in both countries and more likely you know the global economy over time and so as we have the discussions we're encouraging the administration uh, to find a landing zone. We think it's positive that the conversations that took place several weeks ago resulted in a subsequent meeting in Washington. You know, we understand that Xi Jinping and President Trump have their own views and they're trying to calibrate lots of other issues. But I think both sides are coming to the realization that uh, they have something to lose. And if they could find a, a way out 
uh, I would say, hit a couple of singles and get on base. And I think maybe we can build momentum from there. The data would say is you're correct, you know, about the elephants um, because the uh, China economy for the first time in quite some time is slowing based on some of the activities. And I can tell you from the manufacturers I know, if they're not out of China, their sourcing teams are scouring the world right now looking for places to go. And unfortunately, it's primarily not back to the United right. States. Yeah. So so that's happening. And the U.S. economy, which was incredibly vibrant, you know, last year, and yes. you quoted, you know, the October retail sales numbers, which were fantastic, is starting to, through this uncertainty, see some challenges. I want to kind of drill down one level on the multilateral versus the bilateral. So we all know the world is, you know, it's a global economy and everything is intertwined. How do you actually police or make sure that things uh, get done when you have a multilateral agreement? Because isn't that what the current administration is saying is one of the big reasons why bilateral or one-on-one negotiations work better? Because you can't actually enforce a multilateral agreement. Yeah, they, certainly that that would be their view, I think, is that, well, the old way of doing things hasn't worked. That, of course, presupposes that you agree things haven't really worked. And so if you look at the growth in the Chinese economy and the recent growth in our economy, you'd have to say, well, it's still pretty good. I think part of it is how much damage do you want to create along the way by pursuing this vision of a, of a bilateral world? And are you really going to end up in a better place when you get through that conversation? So if your fundamental view is... Uh, what used to be the traditional norm of bilateral of multilateral agreements is not effective. We need to fundamentally change things. But, you know, part of it is a very real uh, recognition that the United States and China over the next 50 years are going to have a different kind of a relationship. And, you know, Graham Allison's book about, uh, you know, destined for war and the whole notion that an emerging and an established, it's going to happen eventually anyway. I think that's maybe a more pessimistic view. I think an optimistic view is we have mutual and shared interests, and China in particular needs to be aware of and, and encouraged by the rest of the global community that there are benefits to playing by the rules, and that if we proceeded in a thoughtful and orderly fashion to adjust a trade relationship with the European Union, to adjust a trade relationship with Canada and Mexico, and we were unified... And then collectively and together, we approached China and said, these are the rules and you need to play by these rules or there will be consequences. We have not effectively enforced and policed the multilateral agreements. But I'm not sure that's the same thing as saying they don't work if they're actually enforced and policed at the time. And maybe this administration in a multilateral world could be more effective. You brought up the Canada-Mexico trade agreement. It's done effectively at this point. Is that the kind of thing where there was a lot of rhetoric, you know, but in the end it came together? Was it a good one for us? And did we land in a good spot based on um, what you see in place at this point? The overriding factor is that we need certainty. There's so much uncertainty in the world with Brexit going on now. And don't forget about Europe. What is What does that look like? And so many of the U.S. retailers and brands are now have up to 30, 40% exposure in Europe. There's all sorts of moving parts, but I, I think that um, we did land in an okay place. And as China's numbers that are out there, whether it's retail sales or PMI or export import data today comes down, 
hopefully China looks at their place and says we're coming from a place not of total strength. So now we have to come to the table and be realistic and play by the rules as much as they can play by the rules. Got it. So what I would hear the two of you really thoughtfully saying is a lot of good things in overall trade need to be recognized. That being said, if you create too much disruption along the way and you actually end up with the reality of these tariffs coming to bear, um, you have problems both on the instability in and then if you did end up with that, you would end up with a negative impact on both the overall economy as as well as just the consumer and how yep. they how they live their their life. Yep. So you two are incredibly well known. Uh, I mean, if I had twenty five thousand members of anything, you know, I'd be lucky. But you know, so everybody's googling you, Matt, all the time. When they do, they find out all these amazing things about your great accomplishments. What would we not find on Google that would be interesting to know about you? Well, and uh, interesting to me, you probably wouldn't find out how much time I spend at. Uh, at hockey rinks and uh, in locker rooms and uh, on on road trips with one of our kids, who's uh, our son, who's uh, an 11 year old sixth grader, who's a travel hockey player for the Washington Little Caps. So when I leave here in a couple of days, I'm going to go home for one night and straight to Buffalo uh, for a hockey tournament. Yeah, I went to the Notre Dame Michigan hockey game, the outdoor one yeah. at uh, Era Parsegian yeah. or whatever the stadium in Notre Dame. Yeah. I was with some Michigan fans, so they were happy they yeah. won. And, and in fairness, I spent a lot of time with our daughters at their lacrosse events, too. Well, so I was going to call you not, out I on that. Be, I want right. to be equal time. Yeah, yeah, yeah I want to be yeah, my friend, My friend, uh, who's the father, does get a hard time from his daughters yeah. that he's a hockey dad. So, Stacy, um, tell me, what would we like to know that's not on Google? I guess what people don't know is I walk almost 80 miles a month in stores throughout Europe and the U.S., which is why I'm wearing comfortable shoes and I always have comfortable shoes on. So I, I spend actually most of my time physically out in the markets looking at what's happening. And then in my very small free time, I split my time between London and New York. Um, and I have a two and a half year old who spends a lot of time on a plane with me. 2019, if there's one thing that you know, you're going to counsel you know, your members on or you see out there that people should think about, what would it be? I would paraphrase uh, former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, who said last week that economic expansions don't die, they get murdered. And in, in the context in which he said it, it was about the Federal Reserve doing something foolish from a monetary policy perspective. I would say we should do our level best to encourage the administration, policymakers, and, and others not to do something foolish that will uh, steal victory from the jaws of defeat here, so to speak. The consumer's in a really good place. We can continue the momentum in the economy. Uh, I think our members here this week, the 40,000 attendees, are very optimistic. So let's separate what's real from what's fantasy, and let's focus on what we can control. Let's keep executing at a high level. This economy has more momentum left in it. Let, let's not squander that. Sounds very zen. You know, <laughs> control what we can control and only focus on that. <laughs> I would say don't get distracted by the continued negative news in store closing because let's be real here. There are players that have invested in their business and it's paid off. And there are players that have not invested in their business that are going by the wayside. So, you know, we heard from Target this morning from Brian Cornell. They're the ones that are investing in their business and making it happen. And that's why they're comping five, over 5%. There are also other, in 2019, I think the keyword will be relationships and partnerships, whether that's using Alibaba 
um, you want to talk about China. How do you make China happen? You don't go in on your own. You use Tmall. You partner your Kohl's and you partner with Amazon and Aldi to drive traffic. You're Nike and you sell four million pair of shoes over Singles Day on Tmall. This is how. The winners and the losers will be separated by partnerships. There's Walgreens with Kroger that we've heard so much about. There's Microsoft and Kroger that they're digitizing stores in a test trial. There's so many fascinating partnerships going on, and that's how you survive. So partnerships. So we're going to swipe right on that one on Singles Day to say that there will be some wonderful things happening in uh, 2019 if we just kind of stay the course. And uh, and we don't uh, become our own worst enemy uh, here with two fantastic leaders who really understand what's going on in retail. Matt Shea, the president and CEO of the National Retail Federation, and Stacey uh, Widlitz, who's the founder of SW Retail Advisors and a retail analyst on CNBC. Thank you both for spending um, this time with uh, our listeners. 